All right, good morning, everybody. You have your Bible with you this morning? Good. 2 Kings chapter 2 is where you need to go. 2 Kings chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from the pew rack right there in front of you so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. Last week, we looked at another scene in the life and ministry of Elijah that is often overlooked, though I'm not sure why. It is quite spectacular of a scene as God sends fire from heaven twice in the process of Elijah's confrontation with a new king, a new king who is still evil like the last king. And in all of this action and detail in the narrative, we saw two primary applications and one secondary application. The secondary application had to do with raising our children with great care. You see, this new evil king simply followed the same path his father, who was an evil king, had laid out for him, as is often the case. As is often the case with children, they will follow after their parents for good or evil. And therefore, we, as God's people, want to be very careful how we're raising our children, to be blazing a trail for them that is one that we would be glad to say, follow me, follow me down this path of faithful obedience unto the Lord. That was the secondary application. Primary, though, we said that we must approach the Lord like that third captain of the 50 approached him, approached Elijah, uh, with great humility and reverence and respect and brokenness. That third captain approached the man of God, not uh, making a case for his own justification, not making a case for his own righteousness, uh, but basically just begging for mercy. He says, look, I know that your God has slain the, the 50 that came before and the 50 before them. And I deserve the same kind of fate, but will you have mercy on me? Will you have mercy on me and spare my, my life? And that is the same kind of posture with which we need to come to the Lord asking for mercy. Because we know that we are sinful. We know that God is holy. And as a holy God, he must punish sinful men. But he's also a God who's full of mercy and grace and made provision for sinful men to be reconciled to himself, to be forgiven of their sins and justified in his sight. And that provision is Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for our sins and rose again, who died the death that we deserve and conquered death and sin and hell and rose in victory. And he offers us the victory. We receive it as a gift of grace. We receive it by faith, not by working and doing or striving, but by trusting and depending on the person and work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. We must come to God asking for mercy. And... We saw a second primary application was that we must not pursue other gods when we have a God. One of the things that gets this king in trouble, Ahaziah in trouble, is that instead of appealing to the God of Israel, who is his God, he appeals to the pagan gods of the neighbors. And the Lord is jealous and will not stand for this. And he says, is it because there's no God in Israel that you've sent for Goliath's God? Sent for a word from him? And I fear that we as Christians even make the same mistake when instead of turning to the Lord, we turn to secondary things like medicine or money or just our own security in this world. Rather than trusting in the Lord, we turn to idols. And we must not make the mistake that Ahaziah made. And one of the best ways we can see if this is a problem for us, if this kind of idolatry is a problem for us, is who gets the credit, is thinking about who gets the credit when things turn around in our lives. If we give the credit to medicine, if we give the credit to money, if we give the credit to our own security that we have built around us and not to the Lord, we have an idolatry problem and we must repent and turn to the Lord. Well, this week we're going to see 
the spectacular end of Elijah's life and ministry in the Old Testament. It's not the end of Elijah, but it's the end of his life and ministry in the Old Testament. And before we move into that text, I want to remind you about the scene that we looked at closely in 1 Kings chapter 19, when this prophet of God, the man of God, under threat of death from Jezebel, the evil queen, he said to the Lord that he wanted to die. In fact, he begged the Lord to kill him directly. I also want you to remember that in the midst of that scene, one of the things that God told Elijah to do when he met with him in the midst of his despair was he told him to go find a man named Elisha. He told Elijah to go find Elisha and train him up for ministry. And Elijah did that. And you will see in the text today the baton handed to Elisha to take over this ministry as Elijah is taken up to the Lord. In fact, I want you to go back to 1 Kings chapter 19 before we read in 2 Kings chapter 2. I want you to read with me the calling of Elisha to follow Elijah. My kids don't like that. My kids think that's confusing, um, that Elijah hands off to Elisha. And so I'm going to say it like that every time I say it so we don't get confused. Which guy we're talking about here? So look at 1 Kings 19, start in verse 19. It says, so he departed from there, that's Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then, listen to this, Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. This is the beginning of this relationship between Elijah and Elisha that we see culminate here in 2 Kings chapter 2. Today we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 2 verses 1 through 15. We'll leave the story there um, because that's when Elisha takes over and we're not studying Elisha in this sermon series but rather Elijah. So look at 2 Kings chapter 2 starting at verse 1. This is what God's word says. And it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has taken me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now... Verse 7, 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. 
Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters, and they were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let me let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, You've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your word today. Thankful to be gathered together to hear from you in your word. And we do pray that you'll give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive all that you have for us today. We don't want to approach this in our own strength, our own ability, our own intellect, but rather with humility and reverence and submission. We want to fall before you and ask you to speak to us. We need to hear from you. We know that you intend to speak to us. In fact, you say in your word that your word accomplishes its purpose when it goes out. It doesn't come back empty ever. So we look forward to what you're going to do in us and through us by your word by your grace, for your glory today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. So this is a lot of ground to cover today, right? And it's quite a scene, isn't it? It's quite a story as they go back and forth traveling and Elijah keeps saying, stay here. And Elisha keeps saying, no, I'm not gonna stay here. I'm going with you. So much for us to learn today. And we're gonna try to walk through all of it. Look at verse one. 2 Kings 2, verse one. It says, it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. First thing I want you to notice here is that the exit of Elijah is front-loaded in the story. It's not as if his departure that comes later is a surprise to anyone. It seems like everyone knows it's coming. And as you read the text, Elijah seems to know it's coming. Elisha seems to know it's coming. These 50 sons of the prophets, whoever they are, they seem to know it's coming. And so we are not building in this story a sense of suspense or surprise, but rather a sense of anticipation. From verse 1 through verse 15, it's a sense of anticipation like Christmas time. Like Christmas time doesn't surprise anyone when it comes along, right? But all through the month of December, we are waiting for this great moment to happen. And it's a similar thing in this story. Also notice the language that's used here. It says that he will be taken up to heaven by a whirlwind. Now, there are some, some biblical scholars that say that essentially Elijah dies just like everybody dies in, in the world and in the scriptures. And I, I want to argue against that. I don't think Elijah dies in this scene. I think he is just translated or transported from earth to heaven without tasting death. 
Because the language that is used here, that he would be taken up to heaven by a whirlwind, and the scene that actually unfolds is unlike anything else we see in the scriptures. And so uh, it's unique language. It's also unique because he's talked about fire and whirlwind before. If you remember back to chapter 19 as Elijah is in that depressed state and the Lord says, I'm going to show you myself to you. I'm going to meet with you on this mountain. You remember what happened? There's a mighty wind, right? A wind that even destroyed some of the mountain, but the Lord was not in the wind, right? And there was this great fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And he spoke to Elijah in that scene by the still small voice. Do you remember that? By the gentle whisper. And yet here, as the Lord takes him up, it's going to be in the spectacular chariots of fire and the whirlwind, something that's not unfamiliar to Elijah. And final thing I want you to see in verse 1 is I want you to mark Gilgal. In fact, it may be helpful to turn to the back of your Bible and kind of chart where he's going. There's going to be a lot of traveling going on in this scene, and it's not, uh, it's not direct travel. It's not as if Elijah is trying to go from point A to point B and happens to stop in some places along the way. No, this is zigzag and backtrack, and it's weird the way he's traveling. And you can mark all of those cities on a map, but it starts at Gilgal. Read on in verse 2, verses 2 through uh, the end of verse 3. It says, Elijah said to Elisha in Gilgal, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take your master away from you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. I think we need to think seriously about what's going on here as Elijah seems to try to convince Elisha to leave him alone. One scholar refers to this as Elijah trying to shake Elisha, trying to ditch him along the way. Is that what's going on here? Well, we'll see as it plays out. Is he just trying to get rid of him? Is he tired of this guy following him around everywhere he goes? Or is there something bigger going on here as he asks Elisha to stay where he is? And even at this point, this story reminds me of the conversation between Ruth and Naomi in the book of Ruth. You remember that story, right? How Naomi lived in Bethlehem, the house of bread, but had to leave the house of bread because there was no bread. And she ended up living in Moab with her family. And while she was there, her sons married Moabite women, pagan foreign women. And as they lived in Moab, Naomi's husband died. and Both of her sons died. And it left her with only herself and these two pagan foreign daughters-in-law. And Naomi decides, I need to go back to Bethlehem. The famine is over. There's bread now in the house of bread. And so she's getting ready to go back. And you remember she says to those two daughters-in-law, it's better for you to stay here. It's better for you to stay here than to travel back with me because I've got no way to provide for you back there. So go back to your father's house and stay here. And you remember one of them named Orpah basically takes her up on the offer and says, okay, I will stay here. But the other one named Ruth says, I will not leave you. Wherever you go, I will go. In fact, it's a, great, it's a great text. I want you to see it on the screen. This is in Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. Then she, that's Naomi, said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law, she says to Ruth. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. 
Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she, that is Naomi, saw that she, that is Ruth, was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. It seems like Elisha is expressing a similar commitment to Elijah here. Where Elijah says, stay here, and he says, no way, I'm with you. I'm with you, I'm not turning back, I'm not going back, I'm not giving up. As Matt said this week, no take backs. I signed up to follow you, and I'm going to follow you. Notice also that when they arrive at Bethel, we're introduced to these sons of the prophets. We haven't seen them before, and we're not going to see much of them after this. There's a lot of speculation about exactly who these guys are. I believe it's most likely that they are faithful men in various cities who know the word of the prophets, who believe the word of the prophets, and who help spread the word of the prophets. There's some debate about whether or not they're good guys or bad guys, though. I think they're probably good guys. But if you read on in 2 Kings chapter 2, they are not perfect guys. They know that Elijah is going to be taken away, and yet when he is taken away, they go looking for him. Like they go on a search for him. It's as if they've heard the word clearly, but they don't really believe it. So they are good guys, but not perfect guys, just like the rest of us. How do they know what's coming? How do they know that Elijah is going to be taken away? We don't really know. Did the Lord speak to them directly? Did the Lord speak to them through some other prophets? We just don't know how they found this out, and we need to be okay with that. We need to be okay with not knowing all of those details. In fact, this text this week, uh, in some ways, raises more questions than it answers about what did it look like as Elijah was taken up, and who are these 50 prophets, and how did he smack the water with his mantle and it split? What did that look like? We're not given all those answers, but we are given what we need in the text today, as always. Read on in verse 4. It says, Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. So they're in Bethel. Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be still. I I like Elisha's response. Yes, I know. Be quiet. Be still. This is basically the exact representation repetition of what we just saw once they arrived at Bethel Elijah once again tried to get him to stay there and go no further but once again Elisha refuses now it seems clear that this is a test of Elisha's faith it's a test of Elisha's faithfulness will he take the easy way out or will he continue to walk as a disciple even when life gets tough and at this point it reminds us not so much of Ruth and Naomi but Jesus and his disciples And Jesus, particularly speaking to his disciples, about the cost of discipleship. Jesus says to these guys who will follow him, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He says this to guys who are on their boat fixing their nets because their livelihood came from fishing. He says, leave it all, follow me, and I'll make you a fisherman of a different sort. And you remember what those guys did? They left their nets right there, and immediately they followed after Jesus. Jesus also invites his disciples to take up your cross and follow me, he says, right? Lay down your life, lose your life for his sake. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, Jesus says. He also says to one disciple who says, can I have some time to go back and bury my dad? Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. 
We don't have time for that. Jesus invites people to follow him with a reckless abandon, a wholehearted, single-minded devotion to him. And so as Elisha follows Elijah, I think we see some parallel in the way we, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, are called to follow him. That when all the other voices in our life may be saying, oh, stay here, oh, don't go any further, oh, it's going to get tough, oh, it's going to be difficult, we say, no, 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 I'm following Jesus to the very end. I'm not turning back and I'm not staying here. Wherever he leads, that's where I'll go. We must learn from Elisha what discipleship looks like. He is willing to take the long road with Elijah. And we must more so be willing to take the long road with Jesus. Because Jesus is better than Elijah, right? Jesus is worthy of more commitment than Elijah, right? Make no mistake, Jesus calls us to follow him for the long haul. Not just for a season, and not just when it's convenient for us, but he calls us to follow him for the long haul. Read in verse 6. It says, Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. More of the same. But it's leading to some conclusion now. At Jericho, Elijah asks him once more to stay. But they travel on to the Jordan River. And that's where the story gets interesting. Look at verse 7. Now 50 of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance. While the two of them stood by the Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters. And they were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now I told you before in this study of Elijah's life that it would be really interesting to look at Elijah's life as it is compared to Moses' life and ministry in the Old Testament. There's some real parallels here. In fact, Elijah has his own like Red Sea parting experience right here as he smacks the water with his mantle and it parts. It reminds us of Moses at the Red Sea. And I also want you to remember at this point in the story that Elijah was a man like us. James tells us that in the New Testament, that Elijah was a man like us with a nature like ours, and yet he was also a man of power, great power. But it's not his power that's on display. It's always God's power on display through his life. And I want to stop there and say just once again how grateful I am that Elijah's story didn't stop at chapter 19 of 1 Kings. Like in his depression, in his disappointment, in his discouragement and darkness, it doesn't stop there. God is not done with Elijah wants to be done, but God is not done with him at that point. He continues to use him multiple times and even does this spectacular thing with him in the scene that we're looking at. He parts the waters so that they pass on dry ground. It's important to note in these verses that this miracle is witnessed by those 50 guys. Those 50 sons of the prophets see this happen. And that sets the stage for something that will happen at the end of the story today. Look at verse 9. It says, When they crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, You've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Now, this conversation between Elijah and Elisha is why I think that Elijah wasn't trying to leave him. He wasn't trying to get rid of him, but rather he was testing Elisha's resolve. And having proven himself faithful now, he's given the opportunity to make a request. And this request makes me think about when the Lord spoke to Solomon. After Solomon displays some faithfulness, the Lord speaks to him, and Solomon ultimately asks for wisdom. 
Rather than riches or a long life, he asked for wisdom. And similarly here, Elijah asked for something that would benefit not necessarily himself, but the people around him, the nation of Israel. He asked for a double portion of the spirit of his teacher. But this doesn't just make us think of Solomon. It also makes us think about Jesus and the promise that Jesus makes of the spirit to his disciples after his resurrection and ascension. Jesus says to his disciples, it'll be better for you if I go away. It'll be better for you if I go away because when I go away, the Father will send the Spirit to help you. It'll be to your advantage that I go away and you receive the Spirit in you. In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. So in a a similar way that Elisha inherits a double portion and does greater things than Elijah, Jesus makes a similar, not exactly parallel, but a similar promise to us that we will do greater things even than he as we receive the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and and is exploded exponentially amongst his people in the church. Elijah's response to this request is curious, as if he's unsure if the Lord will deliver it, but he leaves it to the Lord. He says, if you see me go, your your request will be granted, and if you don't see me, it will not. Look at verse 11. It says, as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two in pieces. So many things for us to see right here. First, I want you to notice that they were going along and talking. Mark that. It might not seem significant, but mark that. Because that's where discipleship happens. That's how this relationship developed and grew. They were going along and talking together. They were sharing their lives and talking to each other. And we must do that as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, what a way to go here, right? This is dynamite, isn't it? Chariots of fire, horses of fire, and a whirlwind that just takes him up. The faithful servant of the Lord who had on his darkest day asked the Lord to kill him never died. He never died. He was taken up, translated to heaven without experiencing death. And Arthur Pink says this about that fact. He says, In an hour of despondency, the prophet had wanted to leave this world before God's time had come for him to do so. And by a way far inferior to that which he had appointed. Under the juniper tree, he had requested that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. Had he been granted his desire, how much he had lost. How much better to be taken away than by death in a fit of impatience. And this is recorded for our instruction, pointing as it does a lesson we all need to take to heart. It is the part of wisdom to leave ourselves and all our affairs in God's gracious hands, trusting Him fully and being willing for Him to use His own measures and methods with us. And here's the simple statement. The mature Christian will assure his younger brethren that today... He thanks God for refusing the answers he once craved. God denies your request now because he has ordained something better for you. Elijah, in his limited understanding of life, said, Take me now. It would be better for me to die today. 
And he has no clue what better is all about. And the Lord has a better plan for Elijah. Perhaps the Lord has a better plan for you than you can imagine at this point. Let's trust him. Let's trust him. So it's a spectacular scene, right? These war vehicles made of fire, pulled by horses, made of fire. And Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind. But notice Elisha's response. He tears his clothes. He tears his clothes in what is a gesture of grief and loss. And I think that's instructive to us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though he sees his teacher taken up to heaven in the most glorious way, it causes him sorrow. It causes him sorrow to see his friend, his teacher, his mentor taken away from him. And I think there's a lesson for us as believers in that. That even when the dearest saint who is closest to us dies, it's okay to grieve. Even as we rejoice that they are taken up to heaven, it's okay for us to grieve and be sad over the loss. Even when we can say with certainty that they are alive and better than they've ever been, it's appropriate for us to grieve that loss. Paul teaches us that we as Christians grieve, unlike the rest of the world who has no hope. He doesn't say Christians don't grieve. He says you grieve differently than the world. You Christians grieve with hope, knowing that this is not the end for those who are following Jesus. Check out 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for that. So, Elijah is taken up. And then look at verse 13. It says, He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had also struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. There's the answer to his question, right? Where is the Lord, the God of Elisha? Smack. Here he is. Here he is parting the waters so that you can cross over on dry land. Remember the request that Elijah had made of Elijah? A double portion of his spirit, right? And he got it. He got it. Elisha will work and serve the Lord for about twice as long as Elijah did. And he will do twice as many miracles as Elijah did. And it all starts right here. Elijah, I said a while ago, is like Moses crossing on the dry land. And Elisha is like Joshua taking the baton from him and also leading the people across on dry land. Remember also that these prophets are watching it. Look at verse 15. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. I told you earlier that it's important that those 50 guys saw Elijah part the water and go across. It is also important that these 50 guys saw Elisha part the water and come back across. And they draw the right conclusion. He will take over for his teacher. He will continue the work that Elijah was doing. In the life of Elijah, passing on to Elisha, there is a clear continuation of the work. Because the work of God has always been going on. And the work of the Lord will always go on. There will be a continuation of the ministry that you are a part of right now. And you, like Elijah, need to be ready to hand the baton to Elisha. You need to be glad to do that. 
not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, but recognize God is the one who is doing work, and he may be using you right now in a certain place to do it, but you're not always going to be here. The Lord will always be here, and he will be working, and he may use you for a season, but he's going to use someone else later on, and you need to be ready to grow that guy up and hand the baton off to him and say, go get him, brother. I'll see you in heaven. And we're not very good at that. Like, we're really not very good at that. We want to hold on to that baton as long as we can, take it to the grave with us, and think, it cannot go on once I'm gone. No, it can, and it will, and it must, and the greater blessing for you would be to hand it off to the guy and say, I'll cheer, I'll cheer you on while I'm still here. Let's be those kind of folks. It seemed like Elijah was one of those kind of folks. Overall, as we look at this story, I think the, I think the big lesson for us is a lesson in discipleship. I think what we want to take away from this is not the hope that we will be gloriously translated into heaven in chariots of fire, but rather to take away the practical observation of their discipling relationship, the relationship between Elijah and Elisha. Those guys had an interesting and exemplary relationship, but I want you to know that someone better than Elijah has come. You are not, as a Christian, a disciple of Elijah. You are not, as a member of First Baptist Church, a disciple of Chris. You're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is calling people to be his disciples, even today. He's calling people to follow him, just like he did with Matthew, just like he did with James and John, Peter and Andrew. He's calling people today still to follow him. He's done it recently with these two guys who got baptized. In the same way he came along and said to those guys 2,000 years ago, follow me, and they left and followed him. These two guys have heard that call and have said, all right, here we go, leave it there, and I'm following you now. And that's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy that the Lord Jesus Christ would invite people like us to follow him because we are so bad. We are so dirty and unqualified and undeserving, and he's so holy and righteous and just. How in the world could we have any kind of relationship with him? Well, it's through his death and burial and resurrection that we can have a relationship with him. If we trust in the work that he has done on the cross, we're cleansed of our sins, we're justified, we're reconciled to God, and we can walk with the Lord Jesus Christ as his disciples. So I hope that somebody will hear him call their name today. I hope that somebody will hear like these guys did, Jesus say, hey, come follow me. And you'll say, I'm in. I'm in. I'm ready to walk the road of repentance. I'm ready to leave it all and follow Jesus because I know that he's my only hope. Maybe that's happening today, so I'm, I'm inviting you. I'll be the mouthpiece of God in this. Come follow Jesus today. Put all your trust in him today. Be saved and walk with him. So We're ultimately, as followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ. But practically, God has given us relationships to help us in that discipleship. Just like Elijah and Elisha had this relationship We need to learn to be like Elisha as a disciple. So let's see Elisha as the example for us as what it looks like to be a a disciple, right? To hear and heed the call to come follow Jesus. And in following Jesus, we want to be faithful learners. Faithful learners, that's number one. As a disciple, I want to be a faithful learner. I want to sit at the feet of my teacher and learn. And if you're going to be a faithful disciple, you've got to be a faithful learner. That means... Primarily, you read your Bible. You read your Bible on a regular basis. You hear the word preached. You engage it. You study it. You memorize it. Be a disciple by faithfully learning. Be a disciple, secondly, by faithfully following. 
That is, we don't just sit there. That's one of the things I love about this. When we baptize folks, we say, buried with him in baptism and raised to walk a new life. And then what do they do after we pray? (laughs) That was a good answer. After we pray, what do we do? They leave the water. They don't just stay there. We don't just, not everybody sits up there for the rest of their lives. They come out of the water. Why? To follow Jesus. To do what he tells them to do. To go where he tells them to go. Being a disciple means being a faithful learner and a faithful follower. And finally, a faithful servant. We, we, we don't just follow Jesus around. We do what he did. He gives us the spirit to do what he did. Not die on the cross for people's sins but love and serve and teach and be witnesses and disciple makers. Even when there might be an easy way out during a difficult time, if we're going to be faithful disciples like Elisha was a faithful disciple, we're going to walk. We're not going to quit. Secondly, we need to be like Elijah as a disciple maker. So we follow Elisha as a disciple, but we follow Elijah as a disciple maker. In other words, we issue the call to others to come follow Jesus. Not primarily come follow me, although we do say follow me as I follow Jesus, but we are called to issue that call to others. And therefore, we must be faithful teachers. If we're going to be disciple makers, we've got to be faithful teachers, sharing the word of God with folks who want to follow God. We need to be faithful leaders, walking the road faithfully so that we can say with confidence, come follow me as I follow Jesus. And we need to be faithfully equipping those people for the work of service. You know, that's, that's my job. It's pastor, leader, job, is to equip you to do the work of service. It's not primarily to do the work myself, but to teach you how to do it. And as a disciple maker, you guys are required to do that, to show others who are not as far along in the race as you are. This is what it looks like to serve him. This is what it looks like to engage. This is what it looks like to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So let's follow Elisha as a disciple, and let's follow Elijah as a disciple maker. And all of this will happen as we live our lives together, as we walk together. That's why I pointed that out earlier, that Elijah and Elisha walked and talked, and we must do that as well. This kind of discipleship will not happen in isolation. You will not be a disciple nor a disciple maker if you're in isolation. So we need Sunday school, we need small groups, We need friends to have lunch with and pray and walk together. We need each other. It will also not happen without intentionality. Just because you share space with somebody doesn't mean you're walking with them in real fellowship and partnership in the gospel. Just merely sharing a cup of coffee or lunch or a Sunday school room together week in and week out doesn't mean you're partnering in the ministry. It will take intentionality to live this kind of life. So the closing question for you is, Who is your Elijah? Who is is the one who is teaching you? Ultimately, it's Jesus, right? But who is the person on the planet who is teaching you what it looks like to follow after Jesus? Who's your mentor? Who's your teacher? Who's your leader? And the second question is, who's your Elisha? Who's the one that you are leading and teaching? Helping, encouraging, and growing along the way. We're called to this. Not just to sit back and do nothing. Not even just to sing praises. But to be a disciple and to be a disciple maker. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for this relationship that is on display in Elijah and Elisha. 
Help us to walk faithfully as disciples and as disciple makers, to have an Elijah that we follow and an Elisha that we lead. God, we recognize that there are people in this room who cannot do either of those things because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are lost. They are without you, apart from you, at enmity with you even. We pray for those folks that today you will call their name, call them out, give them life. Let them hear the truth about your holiness, righteousness. Let them hear the truth about their sinfulness and the reality of judgment. And let them see Jesus dying for them, taking their place. God, we pray that you will give them faith to trust in Jesus, repentance to turn away from sin and be saved, and that you'll give them courage, courage to stand before others and profess their faith in Christ alone. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray.